Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mannell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. My guest on this episode is Laura Meitzner Yoda, who's Professor of Environmental Studies at Wheaton College in the US and holds the John Stott Chair of Human Needs and Global Resources. She did a PhD at Yale in Forestry and Environmental Studies and has years of experience involved in environmental projects in Southeast Asia and Latin America and elsewhere, including work in Indonesia in the aftermath of the 2004 tsunami. As it happens, she was a member of All Souls Langham Place as an older teenager because her parents sent her to London to study for A-levels. So she had several encounters with Uncle John as a young woman. Little did she know that she would end up working on a manuscript of a major work undertaken initially by Professor Sam Berry, but sadly left unfinished when Sam died. And this was to become John Stott on Creation Care, which came out in 2021. So I began by asking Laura what her involvement had been with that book. It's a project that came my way unexpectedly. Uh, so um, I, I'm glad that I was able to be open to hearing about this and, and receiving it. And it's been a big part of my life uh, for the last three years. So the book got started in this way. In 2013, uh-huh. Sam Berry, uh, mm-hmm. who was a friend of John Stott and a well-known biologist and conservationist in the UK, preached a sermon, uh, the Bible and the environment in his local church using some Stott texts for that sermon, and a fellow congregant asked him afterwards, where can I read more of what John Stott wrote on the subject of creation care? And the very next day, uh, there's an email that I inherited in later correspondence. Uh, I saw that Sam wrote Peter Harris of Arasha and Uh asked if it would be worthwhile to bring John Stott's writings into a collection. And then he drafted a table of contents, and over the next four years, he worked on this with the support of Peter Harris and Chris Wright of Langham, Dave Buchlis of Arasha and others. And Sam suffered a debilitating stroke in August of 2017, leaving this manuscript, which was then this very long continuous document interspersed with his own commentary. Very rich insights and unique because uh, Sam and his wife, Caroline Berry, were friends of John Stott. And they had talked about and corresponded about this topic across many years. So in the spring of 2018, I learned of Sam Berry's compilation from Ed Brown, who's the Lausanne Creation Care Catalyst. And I suggested that Ed should carry this book forward uh, to publication. And he in turn suggested that I should. You shouldn't <laughs> so, have said that, should you? <laughs> so I'm, I'm very glad that he did in the end. Uh, but very quickly, I was actually on my way to London 10 days later for a tier fund meeting. And Ed made some introductions. And uh, 10 days later, I met Caroline Berry inside of St. Pancras Rail Station. (laughs) And she passed to me um, a memory stick with the book on it. 
and a few other materials um, from Sam. And thus began the project of learning what John Stott had written on this. So um, that's, that's really how it got started. So um, it kind of just sort of falls into your lap um, in some pancreas station. Um, just let's dial back a little bit and, and um, just describe what you do and how it was that you were the right person to take this on. So I am now the uh, John Stott Chair. So my, uh, my job title has John Stott's name in it. Uh, John Stott Chair of the Program in Human Needs and Global Resources at Wheaton mm -hmm. College. And uh -huh. I'm also a professor of environmental studies. Right. So I did think when talking with Ed Brown, if someone needed to carry this project forward, it would make sense that I would do that. This brings my two areas together. And the uh, John Stott Chair at Wheaton College came together from an endowment from Friends of the College in 2013. And that is the work um, that I've been doing in the Human Needs and Global Resources Program and in Environmental Studies. Hmm. And reading a lot of John Stott's works. Um, I've read most, but perhaps not all of what he's hmm. written. And of course, also the biographies that others have hmm. written about him and materials and you just through these years in this role have gained a lot of um, really interesting insights to his life and ministry and priorities. Mm -hmm. And one thing that surprised me was that he did write as much on the environment as I saw when I received mm -hmm. this manuscript. But many of the writings that I have uh, barely had mentioned that or, or biographies mm -hmm. We mentioned birding in passing yes. or bird watching in passing. But um, I was not even aware in all of that reading that I had done that this much had been um, written or produced or preached upon uh, by John Stott. So um, even someone who has been fairly steeped in his uh, writings, I had these are things that I had missed, including the mm -hmm. sermons I hadn't seen. So um, I did think it would be quite valuable to bring them uh, together in, in one place and to continue this work that Sam mm -hmm. left quite nearly finished. And it seemed, um, yeah, to, to honor his work and, uh, and also yeah. the relationship and learning he had with John Stott. Did you ever meet John? I did, actually, yes. Back in uh, 1988, I moved Gosh, long to time ago. <laughs> I did A-levels near Edgware Road and was living Goodness. with a, a, a family there um, in London. Mary and Dennis Bambury, who were longtime members at All Souls. And I remember on one of the early Sundays that I was living there, they said, would you like to meet John Stott? And we met him uh, just in the entryway in the church after the service. And uh, that was the first of many times that I would see him. Mary and Dennis also led a beginners group that met in the basement of the Weymouth Street Vicarage. Oh. So in the evenings, we would be there. And often at the end of the beginners group, John Stott would come down there was this small kitchenette and the laundry and other things there. And mm -hmm. um, usually talking with other people, but sometimes with me. Um, and I continued attending All Souls um, after university. I worked at Kew Gardens uh, uh, with, with uh, Gillian France for mm -hmm. um, some time. And uh, so the, the period that I was at All Souls was the time when he was often coming and going. I believe mm -hmm. for part of that time he was um, writing, I think it was the Romans, uh, mm -hmm. commentary and he would come back and uh, there would be you know updates and periodic sermons so yeah just mm -hmm. in that 
sort of early formative time of life. Uh, when I was learning about the global church coming from not a very global area in the United <laughs> States, right. uh, that, that really opened my eyes. So it was a simultaneous thing with uh, the global church and also with growing into um, understanding and knowledge mm -hmm. of creative care. So you were at high school in London then? Um, I was, sort of yeah. Key years. So you, your whole family had moved over, presumably? Uh, no, just me at the age oh, of right. 16. Yeah, Goodness. I was, I was kind of done, done my high school here. And uh, okay. my parents thought maybe not quite old enough to go to university. So off I went. Um, and I right. uh, was in a, a very diverse school there uh, near Edgeware Road. Yeah, and it would be. Learned yeah. a lot. <laughs> I bet. So do you remember actually... John talking about, say, environmental issues or um, just scientific things, or is that more a recent discovery? I haven't thought about that so much, but I don't recall mm. specifically um, the sermons or other things that I had at that time. Mm. I definitely knew about the other things that he was working on mm. with missiology and with, um, with obviously all of his preaching. But uh, I don't recall being part of any of the um, work that he was doing while I was there in person. Yeah, so that's mm. really mostly been since um, working on this book since 2018. For me, as I read the material, it was both seeing the scope of what Stott wrote about, but also tracing across time the development of his own thought. So tracing across time the development of Stott's own thought on creation care and how this grew, and what were the influences on him, which I think mm. is an area of great interest to Sam Barry. Was Sam influential on, on that development, do you think? Yes. So they uh, they talked, according to Caroline Barry. So I never met Sam. He had mm. passed away, obviously, before I received the book. But according to Caroline Barry, there were many times that John Stott and Sam Barry, and Caroline also, um, often got together and they would uh, talk about matters of the environment or of science, and they would correspond. Sometimes John Stutt would have a question or Sam Barry would have a resource, and there was a somewhat active correspondence. They would also see each other at Arasha meetings um, or later uh, London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. Those meetings they would be part of. So many times there would be conversations on that. But one thing that was interesting to me, seeing in the text, but also something that's not in the text, uh, would be what I also inherited of Sam Barry's correspondence with many people, more than a dozen people, as Sam Barry sought in the process of putting this book together to discern who were the scientific influencers and mm -hmm. who were the scientific sources that were most influential on John Stott's awareness and um, continuous learning on mm. creation care. We can see in some of the, um, the volumes that were republished that there were updates to the science, and sometimes mm. the people who gave those updates are named, and sometimes they're not. So, for instance, would that be in books like Issues Facing Christians Today? Exactly, yes, yeah. So having, um, a, having a, a chapter on the environment, which was then expanded across time, and having that uh, quite evidently include new resources that were coming out, yeah. new topics. Um, for example, the early 
the earliest sermon that he had that um, was recorded here was in 1977, when topics of global warming or climate change were not yet so much on the horizon. It was more mm -hmm. on topics of that decade, including mm -hmm. population, that was a big mm -hmm. one. Um, but later, that really came to include the topics that were being discussed in contemporary scientific circles, mm. including climate change or global warming. Mm. So that increasingly appeared uh, in, in the revisions of the mm. books um, that went on. So uh, yeah, that really was grounded quite early in John Stott's work on the Psalms. And that mm. stayed fairly continuous or, or unchanged in some ways in the reprints of books, but the right. scientific piece went on. And I could tell from Sam Berry's letters that he was really keen to figure this out from the variety of people that he contacted. And he mentions in the manuscript that he never quite found uh, all of the array of people. Um, this is Sam who didn't find Sam, it. Yeah, Sam Berry was not able to identify the full array of people uh, from his mm. correspondence. I don't have the responses that people sent mm. other than a few of them. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was something of interest. So mm. seeing who were the people, obviously, in addition to reading widely, we do know mm. some of the books that influenced Stott, and those are, mm. are also recorded in the manuscript. Mm. One of the many with whom John Stott corresponded on scientific and environmental issues was Sir Gillian Prance. Laura has already mentioned working for him when he had been the director of the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew in London. France is an eminent botanist and also a Christian believer. And John needed these friends and contacts because he himself had no scientific training, despite his father's love for the natural world, because he dedicated himself to being a scholar and preacher of God's word. But he was a voracious learner, eager to pick up whatever he could from those who were experts in their fields. It is quite striking. And one of the things uh, that was quite um, influential, I think, was this early learning from his father, just the love of the natural world. Mm -hmm. So we could say, you know, from early in life, this propensity to be attentive to it mm -hmm. and just enjoying mm -hmm. being out in nature and uh, especially bird watching. That's <laughs> obviously um, his best known <laughs> hobby, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But I think also from the very first sermon that he gave in 1977 at All Souls on God and the Environment, having the mandate in there to learn about the natural world. So he said in that sermon and in later writings and sermons that part of coming to know God as creator requires us to learn about the creation. And, uh, you know, in a few of the sermons, he's saying something along the lines where everyone needs to have a branch of natural history that you take a special interest and you learn in as a Christian, that that would be a Christian responsibility, that everyone should have that. And of course, a few times he said, well, I wouldn't say which one is the one that we should all follow. <laughs> but we all we know. know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, um, uh, I, I believe that his concern for learning about the environment comes out of this absolute conviction that we must learn about this in order to 
come to know and to love God as we should, our mm. primary pursuit in life. Uh, so it wasn't just sort of an you know, instrumentalist hobby or something to write these chapters or mm. something like that. It really came from a genuine conviction that this is part of what we needed to be doing. And there are many mm. ways to learn about the natural world. And his very clearly also included science, um, mm. in addition to appreciating that as a bird watcher mm. or someone who enjoyed uh, being outside. So that was definitely pulled into his understanding of um, his life as a Christian disciple. Yeah, so it is a matter of discipleship rather than curiosity, primarily. Yes, yeah, which I, which is, a, just as you said, for a preacher, um, that's striking and unique. And uh, the bold claims that he made over and over that we must be studying science and we must be learning about the natural world um, as disciples and as a matter of discipleship, is just something that we don't hear that mm. often from the pulpit. So I think one of the things was that much of the learning came through friendships and also mm. I think seeing the delight that scientist friends took in their work. Mm. Um, Sam Berry himself, I believe, uh, one time that they were out staying with John Stott in Wales, he was working on his mouse genetics projects. Mm. So, um, you know, these close relationships with scientists and seeing, obviously, with uh, Gillian France with ecology and with plants and uh, with others working in other areas, um, I think coming to appreciate the vocations to which they were called mm. and mm. Uh, encouraging them in that as also um, part of their lives of faithful discipleship uh, came, came through um, in his interactions and also in his sermons and his writings. It's it it is very unusual. Um, I can't think of another contemporary preacher or theologian that one could say that of. Probably you you might know of a few in the states, but it's it's certainly unusual. Well, certainly, um, yeah, Dave Buckless and uh, Ruth Valerio and, and others uh, mm -hmm. are are bringing these threads together um, right. in in ways that are yeah congruent mm -hmm. with how Stott did that as well. Yeah. In the course of, of working through this manuscript and, and reading stuff that you hadn't come across um, of Stott's before, were there any surprises or shocks? Well, I mentioned uh, the chief surprise being just how much there was. Right. Um, and then also what you've referred to, which would be his diligence in across time, really um, getting out of his comfort zone <laughs> as mm. a preacher, a theologian, into mm. science and having his own books include things that were far afield from mm. his own area of professional expertise. Not everyone's willing to do that. Um, really bringing that in, I think, as part of his commitment to the double listening and mm. um, listening also to what's happening in the world and a few times saying, you know, this is a bit of a, a struggle or stretch for me to do, but I will still pursue this. One of the things that um, maybe is not surprising, given his uh, commitment to bird watching, would be the emphasis on God's care for animals, is even the concern for sea creatures. And very often he would mention um, the, he has an entire sermon on the extent of God's care for animals. And throughout animals' lives, uh, not just food, but also shelter and all of the ways that he pulls text from the Psalms and mm. elsewhere in the Bible um, to really bring attention to that this 
matter that I think we could read the whole Bible multiple times and still miss of uh, God's um, care for for animals and also learning from animals. The the birds are teachers, right. being one of his um, well known books, and uh, also sermons. You know, pointing out that this is right there in the biblical text. If only mm. we are there with eyes to see it and ears to mm. hear it. Um, and then he extends that into saying that we maybe don't take this seriously enough, um, but uh, that our our lives and lifestyles need to take this into account, that God's mm. love and care, ongoing care uh, for the natural world uh, matters a great deal to our loving creator. And uh, we need to live into that. Um, mm. So his uh, the, the extent to which he went to make that point in his sermons was something that um, impressed me quite a bit. Did you spot any times when actually the, the the shaping and the challenging went in the other direction so that uh, things he was learning in science would actually have implications for his theology or, or was it more just a sort of convergence of his biblical and scientific understanding? I think one of the things that before answering it fully, I'll, I'll try a, a short answer here, which would be that um, the which he, he writes about quite a bit in relation to his growing awareness of material needs and of uh, poverty, especially in mm. the majority world. Right. And as he came to know up close about the circumstances in Africa, Asia and Latin America, largely through his theological connections, mm -hmm. his friendships with people like Rene Padilla and others. This shaped him in ways that I think made him more attentive to the ways in which the um, degradation or loss in, in nature or in the environment had such grave consequences for people's right. lives and increasing suffering in places that he visited. Say like deforestation in the Amazon, for instance. Yeah, or or water pollution or lack of right. water or mm. um, different kinds of contamination from industrial processes, different things that he saw, world hunger issues and these kinds of things impacted his growing concern that we can see through his engagements um, and writing on simple lifestyle, for example. Right. And, and one of the things um, that I found quite striking in the in his involvement with Ron Sider on the 1980 um, International Consultation on Simple Lifestyle is that um, our lifestyle simplicity or attentiveness to how we live should be an integral part of Christian discipleship, irrespective of these human needs of the world, but that his growing awareness of those human needs, of hunger, of suffering from environmental degradation and loss, that that only made more acute the need for Christians to be attentive to this. So I think that comes from his scientific learning. It helped him understand human needs and suffering in a way that I think, um, well, he would even, he's written that this would have sharpened his theological attention to those areas. Mm. Yeah. He never had that, uh, the addressing human needs as the sole purpose 
for conservation right. or for environmental protection. He really wanted to point people that this is love for our creator, and uh, but said that his awareness of the human needs, of course, uh, that only redoubled the efforts um, to um, focus attention on that, the simple lifestyle. I mean, you mentioned the simple lifestyle. It's interesting because my understanding is that certainly in the 70s after Lausanne, the original Lausanne and, and subsequently, there was quite a bit of pushback, um, particularly in North America, but also in Europe um, against that. And I, I assume there was also for some of the the green topics he was addressing. I mean, do you see him actually having to give an apologetic and defend this? I mean, do you detect some of the opposition he was getting through through this work? I don't have um, a, a great deal. I haven't read very much on opposition that came mm -hmm. his way. I think what I usually see in his writing is reflecting just the very simple and obvious fact is that we are not living into what we know we should um, mm. on on areas of simple lifestyle or of um, conservation or of environmental mm. protection. And um, yeah, he, um, I think, had, he would put this in terms that are coming right out of his work as a theologian, as, as a preacher. He would say the, the reason for that is that we, uh, he would point quite bluntly to greed. So it would not be unusual, right, for um, uh, a pastor, preacher, uh, to be pointing to sin as a root cause for um, ills in the world. And he did that quite bluntly. Um, but he would also extend that into saying uh, that, you know, greed, this is a sin that is often ignored. And of course, as we see in in the world, um, even the accumulation of wealth and possessions is something that can sometimes be glorified, even in Christian communities. Mm, mm. Um, but that, yeah, we are unwilling to um, give up comfort or convenience, even when we know that that mm. would reduce suffering of, of others. Mm. So um, that is that's that's one area. Another thing can also be um, because people in very wealthy areas of the world are often distanced and isolated mm. from the effects of environmental mm. degradation and all that that causes uh, comes from that. And there can be a, a lack of awareness, certainly on climate change. Um, this mm. is this is one of the issues. And I think for John Stott, he pointed to his travels in the majority mm. world and seeing up close and personal uh, what um, the effects were on people's lives in, in the church and on his friends, that this was so transformative for him, coming from an upbringing of immense privilege mm. that he did. And um, really his engagement as a pastor with the needs in his local area in London, but certainly globally as well on a completely different scale through the 1970s and 80s and seeing that and I think that undid for him some of this distance and isolation mm. that many of us in wealthy areas can often carry that allow us to be um, maybe willfully blind or just mm -hmm. unaware of mm. the ways that our um, very extravagant lifestyles uh, can have effects on others that are that are concrete. 
and that can mm-hmm. be life-limiting uh, for people mm-hmm. uh, both near and far. It's striking, isn't it? Because it's partly through his travels and friendships in the Global South, particularly, that um, he has a prophetic voice back in the West. Uh, and he refused to be immune to what was going on, actually, on the ground. Yes. And um, I think uh, that he would, in several points, he's written to where that learning that came from people on his travels uh, was so profoundly impacting of the scope of what he uh, saw as the, the work of discipleship and why how we live matters in ways that maybe if you're not aware of those long distance impacts, um, that, that wouldn't have come to the fore. I always make a point of asking my podcast interviewees if there were any areas in which they found themselves disagreeing with John Stott. And of course, Laura was no exception. I asked if there were perhaps things that she saw as she was editing the book, particularly with her expertise in environmental studies, which she would disagree with or have put differently. I think one of the things that I appreciated and gave me a lot of um, reflection was one of these areas where the, um, the scientific material changed over time. And um, having the, um, for example, the chapter on environment in issues facing Christians today and the topics that were covered from uh, from reprint to reprint across so many years, that's something that reflects the changing environmental priorities of the time. Um, And one of the early versions there uh, talks about population and population as it was discussed in the 1970s often talked about issues of overpopulation in certain places and those would be often places far away um, and sort of this uh, idea of overpopulation and how will people be fed who are in that place without necessarily taking into account as the world has in more recent years looking at things like ecological footprint and Mm. how many worlds um, a certain lifestyle takes uh, to sustain. So Mm. um, I think if if the population question were continued more into the current time, I would not be surprised if that uh, the the focus on that were changed to Mm. incorporate perhaps more the ecological impacts of certain lifestyles. Because certainly uh, one person living in, a, in an area where they're growing their own food and not using electricity is vastly different um, from mm. that of most of us in uh, the North Atlantic uh, bordering right. country. In the 70s then, was there a, not necessarily saying that this is what, where John was coming from or where it might have been, but just a, a complacency in the West and seeing, say, the population problem as a problem for over there and sort of benighted nations that don't really understand birth control or whatever it is? Was there a kind of condescension to it? I think that, yeah, definitely if you read books from the 1960s and 70s, early books on population, that is evident in many of those. I'm not saying that's uh, where he was focusing, but I think the issue of population and um, uh, food shortage often went together in right. that, in those decades, 
and the way that people were coming to understand limits, uh, ecological limits. Um, so population comes into the equation there quite quickly when talking about areas of famine or of shortages. And I think it was just, frankly, quite early in um, sort of popular understandings of ecological limits. And that's that was a starting point, uh, which certainly has grown a lot and, and changed over time. But it really did get people thinking in helpful ways. Uh, what is this concept of ecological limit? How What does environmental change look like? Um, can humans actually impact the environment in these ways? Uh, and how does a changing environment also then in turn impact us? So those were some of the questions um, being asked uh, in different ways in those decades. I, I wonder whether, um, as we sort of draw to a, a conclusion, whether there are, are things that, you know, uh, um, you would advocate as simple things that people listening can can do immediately to start trying to to take this issue seriously and you know particularly with questions of climate change and, and so on are there particular things you recommend yeah great um and and something i ask myself every day soon after mm -hmm. getting up <laughs> um how how does my uh, how does the how do the choices that i make today how does my lifestyle and what i do today um have impact on on others mm -hmm. uh, near and far um, and I think one of the benefits that I would gain from this work with Stott would be to say, we really should spend more time in the Psalms than perhaps we do, hmm. um, at least in the church circles that I'm in, and having um, sort of living aware of the um, way in which worship of God is threaded throughout uh, the Psalms in ways that I don't know that we fully live into in our daily lives. Mm. So if we were to be more steeped in some of what, uh, yeah, he points to in his writings on mm. the Psalms, uh, would we be more attentive as we mm. go about our everyday lives to um, the birds and the trees and um, also the pollution and other things around us and cause us to reflect on how the place where we are and how we live in that place, how does or perhaps does not that reflect our love mm. for our creator. Mm. So that's one, is uh, starting mm. where Stott would exactly start, mm. which is in the biblical text. Mm. Um, as an environmental educator, uh, we have a, a sort of a, a shorthand um, thing that I have found very helpful, which is uh, to learn about something, again, something that John Stott would advocate. Mm. So pick an area of interest, whether that's food or animals or land care, or um, community sharing of common resources, pick something that someone uh, has an interest in. We each have different ones, so it's good to have people working on different areas and learn about that and act on that until it becomes a habit. And then bring others along. And once we have that, repeat, start with something new. So pick something, whether it's on um, an awareness of the ecological impacts of meat consumption, or um, perhaps uh, taking a season for fasting and having a globally simple, typical diet and having something that someone in a place without the access to dietary diversity that um, may be present in our supermarkets and committing one or two days a week um, to eating as uh, the sorts of resources people would have available in another mm -hmm. place. 
And building this into our ways in tangible, practical ways, where we are regularly reminded of um, the uh, the goodness of the productivity of God's earth. I think food is a great way to do that. Um, and then also the realities that other people are living with. So um, what are what what is it like to have the same two or three foods for a meal? Um, can we what what are the ways that we would be spiritually changed by um, having voluntary limits on dietary diversity from time to time? Is that a form of fasting that would um, be worthwhile for us to pursue? Mm. So those kinds of things. Mm. Um, and again, everyone would have different areas. For some people, it would be, a, I know of a church um, that uh, has wanted to do uh, baptisms in a nearby river, but the river was too polluted. So the church huh. got very involved in water cleanup and huh. river conservation. And it became part of their, even their Sunday school activities was uh, learning about uh, what they could do in the river. Brilliant, that's that's really helpful. Uh, I wonder if, as we close, you you have a favorite thought or passage or quote from, from Uncle John that, that you keep coming back to and just uh, are grateful for or struck by wow uh that is hard to choose <laughs> too many too many there are so many i mean one one that he uh that he regularly emphasized and one that i want to spend more time with is just that our care of creation should reflect our love for the creator hmm. as simple as that hmm. and um I guess as an environmentalist, as I go about environmental, the work of environmental care, am I always orienting that as an act of love for God and um, living into that in my vocation? Uh, that's that's one area. Um, I think my uh, my hope for the book is that people who already like Stott will discover the uh, area, this new area that perhaps they, as I, didn't really know about um, of his work on creation care and find new things for themselves in Stott's writings on that. And maybe people who are at the other side who don't know Stott all that well, many young people or young mm. people that I work with, students, um, don't know much about him, but they care a lot about environmental things that they may mm. discover Stott's writing on this and be encouraged by the work of someone uh, like him who invested in this uh, throughout his his career um, and and ministry in in the church. Wonderful. Um, I have to ask though, um, are you a bird watcher? <laughs> I am not a bird watcher. Ah, like you failed. <laughs> <laughs> I I am friends with many bird watchers. I watch them when they come, but I would mm. not go to his lengths <laughs> to, no. to see them. I would say it's something that uh, through the course of working on this book, and it's never too late. Um, uh, it is something that I have increasing interest in, and we are uh, doing a bit more with that currently, um, and then starting to to learn more about that. One of the yes. things that gives me hope uh, for so many of us is that uh, Stott's work on creation care and his first sermons and his writing on that really didn't come until middle age. So um, I think it may not even be too late uh, in those middle years to pick up bird watching, or in fact, um, 
care for creation. Mm -hmm. So having that be something that even if you're not born with that perhaps innate passion for birds, uh, it's not too late to take <laughs> some binoculars or just go for a walk in the woods. <laughs> Too right. I, th I think uh, of the people I've talked to for the podcast, I think it's coming at about 50-50 of his friends who, who were converted and some were very resistant indeed. Um, but uh, no, that's wonderful. Laura, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Um, thank you very much indeed. Last November saw the huge COP26 climate conference take place in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, it was pretty hard to, to avoid hearing about it. And there were a handful of Langham people who were present. In particular, Jochebed Solano, who's a volunteer preaching movement coordinator in Panama for Langham, was attending on behalf of Tear Fund. She's currently working on a book to gather memories of indigenous believers from down the ages. And that is an increasingly urgent need because one of the unexpected consequences of climate change is that it's causing vast displacements, particularly of indigenous peoples around the world, because of changes in weather and land conditions. That's just one of countless other ways in which members of the global Langham family are involved in caring for God's people and stewarding God's resources. So do pray for Jochebed and others like her who are seeking to care for God's creation as an integral part of their Christian discipleship. Thank you so much for listening to The Stock Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.